everyone must obey God's word. We're in 1 Kings chapter 13, and it comes to us, if you read through it this week, you recognize this is quite the bizarre chapter. We have altars that are spoken against, paralyzed hands, healed idolaters, a lying prophet, the death of a man of God, and so much more. Indeed, there are a lot of unanswered questions that this chapter gives rise to. However, its main message is clear. Don't walk in the ways of Jeroboam, but believe the word of the Lord. And when we say to believe the word of the Lord, we mean obey it. Everyone must obey the word of the Lord. The chapter's frame is also quite clear and actually begins back in verse 25 of chapter 12 and then runs all the way to the end, verse 33 and 34 here. We have a little inclusio or a frame where we are confronted with Jeroboam's idolatry and his refusal to repent. Additionally, another feature of this chapter that we want to be acquainted with as we sort of walk our way through it is the deliberate ambiguity of the characters. So Jeroboam is named there at the front end, he's named at the back end, and in between, he's simply referred to as the king. And the man of God is, well, he's the man of God. The message he bears is more important than what his name is or where he's from. You see, in the course of our chapter, he will die, the messenger will die, but the message will continue on because God's word is the main character in this chapter and throughout the rest of Kings. Prophets will come and prophets will go, but the word of the Lord will stand sure forever and it will accomplish that for which it is purposed. We also see the old prophet who, again, not named. All of this to sort of paint in bright colors for us that it is the word of God which is moving everything along. God is providentially ruling and reigning over everything that comes to pass. And so we see that everyone must obey this word. Two reasons I'm going to say everybody must obey this word. The first will come to us in uh, the front part and the back part of the chapter, and that's because God does not accept, he rejects man-made, made-up religion. And secondly, because those who rebel against God earn for themselves judgment. Disobedience to God's word brings judgment. Got four signs sprinkled throughout the chapter that show us the need to listen to God's word. They're there for you in your outline, and we'll come across them as we read the text together. First, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we ask for your help this morning. Pray once more that you would forgive us our sins of the week, of turning our attention to lesser things, giving our affections to uh, others in a way that is idolatrous. We confess we have looked to any number of people or circumstances 
to satisfy us in a way that ought be exclusive to Christ. Indeed, we have been disobedient to your word. We ask your forgiveness now, knowing that Christ Jesus, in Christ, you are faithful to forgive our sins. Lord, we know it is your power alone that can recall wandering children, that can impress upon them a sense of divine things and can render that sense lasting and effectual. From you come all good purposes and all good desires. You are the one who dispenses to us all happiness. And so once more this morning, we pray that you would blow away the ashes of unbelief by your Spirit's breath, that you would give to us the light and fire and heat of your love. We need your spiritual comforts once more this morning. We thank you that you are gentle, peaceful, mild, refreshing. That you melt us into lowliness before you and give us rest in Christ. We ask that you would fill the garden of our souls this morning and that the aroma of our Christian lives would encourage one another and be wafted unto others. Lord, indeed, we pray that in us you would fulfill your purposes. We ask that we would bring you glory and be a blessing to all as we seek to love you by obeying your word. Help us to hear it, to understand it now. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To get a handle on what's happening in our text, it's necessary that we orient ourselves to our place in the story. Remember, big picture in Kings, it is a story of decline and demise. And it's a story that's heralded initially back in chapter 1 by the declining David. David is sick and ill and dying. He's really, really old. And the people, they can't even get his blood pumping by bringing to him the beautiful Abishag to share his bed. And so, it becomes apparent as a coup is about to arise that David needs to appoint his successor. That turns out to be Solomon. And Solomon brings the kingdom to its high point. Uh, Around here, uh, it is almost peak season as the leaves turn, and it is a beautiful panorama when you go outside and look around at the mountains and the leaves thereon. Solomon's reign in Israel is a bit like that. It is peak season. Everything is beautiful, everything that glitters is in fact gold, and silver is as nothing in Solomon's day. The nations come to hear his wisdom, the temple is built, the people burst forth in worship to the Lord their God. And yet, in those silent corners of the kingdom, And in the depths of Solomon's heart, the seeds of idolatry grow. 
And finally, they come into full bloom in chapter 11 when we are confronted with Solomon's myriad of disobedience. Indeed, he has followed none of the instructions enjoined upon the kings of Israel in Deuteronomy 17. He is not to gather to himself foreign wives or many wives. He's not to bring to himself excessive silver and gold. And he's not to acquire many weapons to himself in the form of horses that have come by way of Egypt. And yet Solomon has done all of these things. His love for guns, gold, and girls outruns his love for God. And so we have that tragedy at the beginning of chapter 11 when we read, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not truly whole to the Lord his God. The story continues, and he builds high places for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, and he builds these structures, these shrines to false gods for all his foreign wives. Of course, the Lord had appeared to Solomon twice, and in that second appearing warned him, if you turn away from me, this temple that you have built as my house of worship will be nothing more than a pile of rubble. Do not turn away from me or my judgment will come. And so in chapter 11, God tells Solomon that he will take the kingdom from him and give it to another. We read of Jeroboam, who is an industrious man. Indeed, he's very David-like. As the Lord comes to him and makes David-like promises to him, God says to Jeroboam, if you will keep my word and live like David lived, I will make for you a house like David's. You will rule over all that your heart desires. Remember, uh, there's that scene with the prophet Ahijah. He has that new cloak, and he takes it off, and he splits it into 12 pieces. And he says, take, take 10 for yourself. Take 10 for yourself. These 10 tribes of Israel, you're going to rule over, and God is going to keep one for the house of David, a lamp burning. Solomon catches wind of this and then plays the part of Saul to Jeroboam's David and he looks for a way to kill Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam goes down into Egypt until Solomon dies. And that takes us to where we were last week, when Rehoboam ascends to the throne, Rehoboam, son of Solomon. And the people come to Rehoboam, and they say, your father laid upon our shoulders a heavy yoke. Lighten it, and we will serve you. Rehoboam famously asks his father's advisors what he ought to do, and they say, Lighten the yoke. Be good to the people today, and they will be faithful to you for days upon days. He doesn't like that counsel, though, and so he, he gets with his buddies, those he uh, grew up with, and he says, what do you think we should do? And they're like, double down on the heavy load stuff. That's the way to go. And so uh, Rehoboam says to the people, my little one is as thick as my father's waist, and my father punished you with whips? but I will punish you with scorpions. The scorpion policy goes as well as you might imagine, uh, and it prompts an insurrection, wherein 
the ten northern tribes who are called and referred to as Israel throughout the rest of the book, Israel crowns for themselves a new king, the man Jeroboam. And so we have another picture in chapter 12 where Rehoboam plays the part of the Egyptian-like Pharaoh. He's putting heavy burdens on the people, and Jeroboam puts on the, the cloak of Moses, and he leads the people out from underneath of that oppression so that they might worship the Lord their God. Then, tragically, Jeroboam takes off the garments of Moses, puts on the garments of Aaron. Chapter 12 concludes, and remember it's the front end of our frame of our section today, with Jeroboam fearful for his life. You can see it uh, there, the end of the chapter verse 26 and 27, he's afraid that if the people go to Jerusalem to worship, they will then turn back to Rehoboam. They'll reject him as king and kill him. And so he ignores the promises of God to him. If you obey my word, you'll rule over all your heart desires. He ignores that and fears that people are going to turn away from me if they practice orthodoxy. And so what he does is he betrays the Lord his God. Last week we talked about there are things worse than death. Betraying God is one of them. And he creates his own religion. We're told a couple times that he comes up with it from his own heart. I particularly like verse 33. He had invented it or devised it from his own mind. Indeed, he creates a religion that has all the trappings of orthodoxy, it's got biblical language, biblical activities, and biblical roots. I mean, he even builds his idols in historically significant sites, Bethel and Dan. And yet, his religion, Jeroboam's religion, is a bunch of bull. No, no, really. He, he builds two golden bulls. A bull is a calf, just for the record. Two golden calves, not one. Two at these two different sites to accommodate the people so that no one will be tempted to travel all the way to Jerusalem. And then, if the Arionic imagery wasn't apparent enough, he quotes Aaron almost verbatim, verse 28, chapter 12. You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Jeroboam is leading a counterfeit Israel and has established a counterfeit religion. This brings him into direct opposition with God. And so we come to what seems to be tantamount to a temple dedication ceremony at the beginning of chapter 13, and we read this starting in verse 1. Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord. Uh, listen for that as we go along. It's going to come up a bunch. By the word of the Lord to Bethel, Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, O altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, 
a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned upon you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand, which he stretched out against the man of God, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. This is peculiar. He prophesies not against Jeroboam particularly, but against the altar specifically. You know, well, why, why is that? You know, prophets are weird. They do weird things. Uh, often in the Old Testament, they act out their sermons. And so there's a little bit of that going on. The altar is emblematic of Jeroboam's made-up religion. And so the word of God, the prophet of God, is condemning this man-made religion. He is rejecting it. He is saying, this religion is powerless. It's false. It's a lie. Do not trust in it. Indeed, God is going to judge it. You'll notice the word torn. So verse 3, it's going to be torn down. Verse 5, torn down. Uh, The reason that is there is to take our minds back to that imagery where Ahijah tears apart his garment to signify that the kingdom is going to be torn out of Solomon's hand and given to another. In the same way that judgment came upon Solomon's kingdom, judgment is coming upon Jeroboam's religion. Man-made worship is rejected. This is a pretty obvious message from this section. We are not free to worship God according to to our own whimsy. We have uh, Exodus imagery again. Right? If uh, Jeroboam has put on his Aaron clothing and has put up these two golden calves, well, then we have the man of God here playing the part of Moses when he comes down the mountain. You remember in Exodus 32, Moses and Joshua are coming down. They've been uh, receiving the word of the Lord. And Joshua's like, what is that sound I hear? It sounds like singing. And Moses is like, That's the song of people who are worshiping. The people are playing at orgies and drunkenness and song. And Moses arrives. He is hot with anger. He grinds up the calf and pours it into the water and then makes the people drink it. That's not even to mention when he says, if you are with the Lord, come to my side, and the Levites come to his side. And then those who continue to reject the Lord, they end up slaughtered at the end of the sword of the Levites. And as a reward, the God makes the Levites priests. What you'll notice here, uh, Jeroboam 
uh, maybe later on. Nope, it was early, chapter 12. Jeroboam takes priests from anywhere, not just the tribe of Levi. This, too, is in opposition to the word of the Lord. That we are not free to worship God any way that we would like to is clear, not just from the Exodus account, but from repeated accounts and God's repeated words over and over and over again throughout the Bible. I think maybe my favorite example is that of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. The temple's been built, the people are going to worship the Lord their God, and they decide, hey, uh, I know that God prescribes a particular kind of incense if we are going to go before him in the Holy of Holies, but you know what would really be awesome is if we use this other kind of incense. I'm sure the Lord will really like that. He'll really be honored. He'll, he'll be excited about our use of creativity under the end of bringing him glory. Let's, let's get after it. And they, they walk into the Holy of Holies with their strange fire, their made-up incense, and, well, what happens? They're consumed by God. They die. We are not free to worship God according to our own invention. To worship God in a way that is acceptable to him is to worship God according to his word. God rejects made-up worship. That's what sign number one is about. Everyone must obey the word of the Lord made-up religion is rejected. Notice, too, in this incident, as, as the altar bursts forward to prove that the man of God's words will come to fruition, right? If God can keep his word in the short term, he can keep it in the long term. And he's prophesied that Josiah is going to come. Eventually, it won't happen until three centuries later, but Josiah will come, and he will paint the altar with the blood from the veins of those false priests, and he will burn their bones upon it. Indeed, Jeroboam's whole house will fall. It really is interesting. Uh, Jeroboam actually names one of his sons Nadab, right? One of Aaron's sons, Nadab. And Nadab comes to the throne for a short two years, and then a guy named Basha raises up against him and kills him, along with Jeroboam's entire household. Because Jeroboam refuses to repent. He insists on ruling his own life. He insists on worshiping his made-up God in his own way. Again, his religion has the trappings of orthodoxy, but it is powerless. Indeed, it brings upon him the wrath of God. Despite the king's obstinance, however, and his paralyzed hand, we see that God shows mercy. Verse 6 is so surprising. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. Like, no pretense that his religion actually works at this point, right? He's not praying to the golden bulls. He's talking to the man of God. Pray that my hand would be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. This is one of those scenes where I'm like, if I'm God, that ain't happening. Sorry, buddy. Withered, paralyzed hand forever. 
Maybe some boils on top of it. God is so gracious, is he not? It's so surprising, even though we're familiar with the gospel, even though we're familiar with God's word, his grace should still surprise us. We are all like Jeroboam. We have all rebelled against God, insisted on our own way, and yet God, because of the great love with which he loves his people, has chosen to have mercy on us. While we were yet sinners, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. That's scandalous. God becomes a man so that he can die in the place of men. That is scandalous grace and mercy. It shows us the great love of God and it shows us the severity of our sin and God's commitment to justice. All sin has been or will be punished. Evil will not remain at large forever. The sword of justice will fall. And the question is, who will it fall on? If you are in Christ, God's justice against you and your sin has already been meted out. His death is your death. If you are not in Christ, non-Christian, the sword is yet to fall. And there is an eternity of torment under God's righteous wrath stretched out before you. I implore you, do not go the way of Jeroboam. Turn from your sin. Do not ignore the mercy of God. You, if you will come to Christ, will be given eternal life right now. And you will be promised a resurrection in the future. Stop ruling your own life. Take the paper crown off your head. Bend the knee to the king who has death's pelt upon his wall and wears glory upon his brow. Come to King Jesus. Pledge your allegiance to him by faith. Receive mercy. Don't be like Jeroboam. Heart stretched out, call out to God for his favor, heal my hand. All right, I'm good, I don't need God. Don't look for God's good gifts, which by his common grace, everything good you have has come from his hand. Don't just go after God's good gifts and forget about God. Don't just seek God's healing in the temporary right now, which he may or may not give. Seek him, the healer. Jeroboam wants the healing. He doesn't want the healer. He wants God's gifts. He doesn't want God. He wants to go his own way, worship according to his own heart. He doesn't love God. He loves himself. And that continues. Despite all the signs he will receive, we've seen sign the altar. We've seen the sign Jeroboam's hand, these two things that show God's word is certain. It's certain to come true. He's going to carry out his will. And, and yet Jeroboam, by the end of all of this, he's going to get two more signs, but he still doesn't repent. Verse 33, after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. 
but made priests for the high places again from among the people. Any who he would ordain to be priests of the places that are high. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Jeroboam receives temporary mercy but does not repent, does not submit himself to the God of mercy. Still though at this point, he has a little bit of a change at heart. He changes tactics. All right, maybe I shouldn't have the man of God arrested. That didn't go well for me. But maybe I can have him to my house. I can buy him off. Verse 7, And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But God cannot be bought. He cannot be manipulated. Verse 8, And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half of your house... I won't go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way you came. So the man of God went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. You can see this third sign, his refusal to eat, is a demonstration that God is not in fellowship with Jeroboam or those who practice his religion. To eat with Jeroboam would be to undermine his message. To refuse Jeroboam's hospitality makes loud and clear God is not at peace with this people. This whole scene is really incredible, is it not? I mean, you've got the sort of temple dedication ceremony. Maybe you can think of it like a church service. Uh, Jeroboam is is doing his little church service. They're they're making offerings. There are all kinds of people around. And then here rolls up the, the man of God amidst all these people. He rolls up and he says, hey, all of this is bunk. I mean, he's he's quite brazen. He's quite fearless can't help but notice the contrast between him and Jeroboam. Jeroboam fears the people so much, wants their approval so much, makes up his own religion. Man of God, he's committed to the word of the Lord, willing to potentially be arrested and die for it. He goes into that situation, he doesn't know how it's going to go. He's brave enough to speak God's word to God's enemies. Now, it is unlikely that any of you will be before kings, but you will be before family and friends and people who are increasingly hostile to the morality taught by the Lord our God in Scripture. And as we spoke last week briefly, I want to encourage you once more again Do not shrink back. Be courageous. Be strong. Speak the truth in love. And be clear. Are you trusting in Christ enough to have difficult conversations with others? Are you merciful enough to speak God's word to people who will hate you for it. 
think one of the saddest things that I've seen in our culture and in the church particularly is how parents have failed to disciple their children and then invert God's design. Parents are to raise and to teach their children. And what I've seen happen over and over again is parents get older and their kids get older and the kids all of a sudden, not discipled, not taught well, embrace the morality of the world. And then they come along and they disciple mom and dad. can't tell you how many times, how many stories I've heard about people that appeared to be Christians, appeared to believe the Bible. And then their son or daughter comes out. And all of a sudden, following Jesus doesn't seem so important. I, I can't lose that relationship with my, with my child. You, you want me to give up my, my child to follow Jesus? Yes. Jesus says the one who does not follow him above all else is not worthy of him. There is a cost to following Christ. Following him is right. Friends, do you love and trust Jesus enough to obey his word when it's hard? Do you love and trust Jesus enough? Do you love others enough to speak his word to those who will revile it, who will hate it, and who might just be changed by it? This prophet is brave. This man of God speaks God's word to God's king. The king is not exempt. Everyone must obey God's word. The message and the signs, they couldn't be clearer. Everyone needs to obey God's word, and that includes the man of God himself who speaks it. Indeed, he disobeys and becomes for us the fourth sign. Look with me at verse 11. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. You know, the, his boys come home. You won't believe what happened in church today. They also told their father the words that the man of God had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And the man of God said, I am. And then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And the man of God said, I may not return with you or go with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For because it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. Just a quick side note. Uh, Bethel was really close to Jerusalem. It's like six-ish miles. So this is not a huge ask for him not to eat while he's there. Just thought that was important. Verse 18. And the old prophet said to him, I also... Am a prophet as you are. 
And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. Two words in Hebrew. He lied. He lied to him. So the man of God went back with the old prophet and ate bread in his house and drank water. When I read this text, I, I, I sort of did one of those double takes. I said, no, he, he didn't just. The old prophet didn't just play the, the God told me card, did he? He did, and it worked. I think the, the God told me card is the, the Christian trick that's old as time to basically do whatever it is you want. It's never employed to do what you don't want, right? I've never heard anybody say, God told me I need to work in the nursery and change as many diapers as possible. No, no, no. It's always, always to get what they want. I think my favorite example of this is a, a legend I heard while I was in seminary. There was a, a young seminarian, uh, and he had his eye caught by an astounding beauty during a chapel message. And, and looking down, he said to himself, Whew, I really like her. Lord, I'm going to pray. And if the sermon is done before five minutes after 12, I'm going to know this is a sign that you are speaking to me that she should be my wife. And glory of glories, the sermon was done five minutes before 12. He knew God had given him a sign. God had told him that she was to be his wife. And so running down from the balcony and, and out those wooden doors, he met her at the bottom of the steps. He gave that Beatles line, hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name? You guys know that line. He says, God told me we are supposed to be married. You are going to be my wife. God told me. And the young woman said, well, he didn't tell me, so it's not going to happen. See, when you bring in God told me, you excuse yourself from all responsibility that you would have to take for making a decision on your own, and you put out of reach any criticism of your own decision. Because, after all, it's not you deciding. God said. And so who is to object to what God has said? God told me is employed as a form of spiritual bullying. To get what someone wants. I've tried it in my house this week when I was studying. Chelsea, uh, God told me that we are to have tacos three nights this week uh, and that uh, we need to have some sourdough bread and pretzels. I got two of the three, so not bad. Seriously, though, I, there are many Christians who sort of fall for this, this play. It really is concerning. Friends, God has given us a book. If you want to hear God speak clearly by his spirit, read the Bible to yourself out loud. He has spoken in his book. The book is authoritative. We need to follow John's instruction and to test the spirits. We need to be as Bereans, consuming the word, examining the word to make sure that these things are so. Our man of God 
should have believed the word he received from God, not that which was spoken contrary to it. God had given him everything he needed. He didn't need to look outside of God's good gift to some further and deeper revelation. Indeed, it cost him his life. You also notice what the prophet does here. He says, the old prophet says, I also am a prophet. It was in Bethel, Jeroboam's land, not a great start. But what he's doing is he's flashing his credentials, saying I'm sort of an expert in the things of God, to lend credence to his lie, right? Here, we'll do alliteration, we're Baptists. Uh, His credentials lend credence to his, uh, conceit's not the right word, uh, deceit, his lying. There's a C word out there somewhere, cunning, right? His credentials lend credence to his cunning. We need to be wise, friends, and discerning, especially among those who would flash their credentials in order to try and get us to get us to believe them. We have a book. Now, quick caveat. Oftentimes, Christians who are saying things like, God told me, are not trying to be as malevolent as this particular prophet. The reality is, I think oftentimes when people are saying God told me, they're being imprecise in their language. (laughs) What they really mean is, I prayed about this, I looked at the Bible, and this is the best decision that I'm able to come to. Or, I feel as if the Lord is is leading me in this direction, I could be wrong, right? They're leaving space for both God to, to work and for their own interpretation of God's work to be wrong, right? And so, I I make that caveat to say, be generous. People are not as precise in their language as as I like to be, or try to be anyhow. Some of you are going to come later and be like, you're not really precise. Anyhow, uh, that's just an addendum, and then we're coming to one last observation on this particular part of the scene, uh, which is this. Uh, Notice the man of God, when he is before Jeroboam, and he is prepared for battle, resists Jeroboam, no ifs, ands, ors, or buts about it. He's in and out, he's prepared for battle. Resist the temptation. But when he's resting beneath the oak and he's met by the prophet, he falls prey to temptation, to disobey God's word. Think think we're the same way. When we know we are being tested, we get our guard up, but when we are relaxing beneath the oak in a less obvious foe comes along, we stumble. Friends, listen, the greatest threat against the church is not the nations raging against it, but the wolves who hide themselves within. There are many wolves, false teachers, who don sheep's clothing. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Brothers and sisters, we must stay awake. We must stay vigilant. We must practice Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let us be a discerning people. Use our faculties together with God's word to order our lives. Ignoring those who would tell us to disobey God's word because they have some further revelation. The old prophet has the right credentials, appears as a friend, but plays the part of an enemy. He lies to the man of God as the serpent lies to Eve in the garden. And just as Adam ate what he was forbidden to eat, so too does our man of God. Look with me, verse 20. And as they sat at the table, this is the most bizarre part of this whole thing, the word of the Lord came to the prophet. That's the old prophet who just lied about prophesying that we're keeping score. Who had brought him back? And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah. Thus saith the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat not bread, drink no water, your body shall now not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. What an awkward you know, dinner experience. Maybe you've had some awkward meals with your, your family, but I don't know if you've ever invited your, someone over to your house like on the pretense of a lie and then at dinner uh, called condemnation onto them for believing your lie. I don't know how you recover from that. Uh, you're going to die because you came to have dinner with me. Would you like some milk and cookies, dessert? Not great. It's an awkward dinner. And for me, it brings up sort of shades of Balaam. If you guys remember Balaam, you'll have to read the whole account, Numbers 22. Uh, Balaam is hired to prophesy against God's people, but he can't help but bless them. And the whole account starts with, it's really funny, Balaam is supposed to be this diviner, this, this great seer. And the angel of the Lord stands before him in the roadway with a sword drawn and Balaam can't see but his donkey can, right? So his donkey's like, I'm not going forward, and Balaam beats him and all that, and eventually God opens the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey's like, why are you hitting me? It all unfolds. The point is, Balaam is not a faithful prophet, but that doesn't make him completely useless to the God of providence. Here's the point of Balaam, and the point that I want to sort of impress upon you here usefulness is not equal to faithfulness. This old prophet is useful to God, but he is not faithful to God. As a warning for all of us, and particularly to people like me who are in ministry, you can be very useful to God. He can get work done through you. Do not use that as an index of your faithfulness to God. God uses this old prophet to tell the man of God his own doom.
And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet. This is important later, verse 23, for the prophet. Man of God has been man of God all through the text. Verse 23, he's the prophet all of a sudden. Just put that in the background. We'll come back to it. Whom he had brought back. And as the man of God went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road, and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body, that's the body of the man of God. There's deliberate ambiguity here, just keep that in your mind. The body of the man of God thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother! And after he was buried, he said to his sons, When I die... Bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. What a bizarre scene. Man of God leaves, he's now called prophet, he, he, he leaves the old prophet's house on the old prophet's donkey and is attacked by a lion. But the lion, it turns out, is God's signature on the situation. We're reminded that circumstances don't determine God's plan, but God's plan determines circumstances. As God brings immediate judgment on the man of God and lets everybody know it's his doing by having the lion and the donkey stand together beside the man of God's body. We can't dismiss this as your normal, everyday lion killing. That would have been somewhat regular. I know that's weird to us, but more like a car crash, right? This is irregular. God signs the situation. And so we have the four signs. We realize everyone must obey the word of the Lord. King and prophet. Everyone. No one is exempt. Made up religion is rejected and disobedience brings judgment. The sword of justice falls. Therefore, we ought to not walk as Jeroboam walked. We ought to resolve 
to obey the word of the Lord. We walk away from this text realizing that God rules by his word, that his providence cannot be overcome by human pride or stupidity. Yet if we're honest with ourselves, we do feel as if something is amiss. We understand that the man of God dies for his disobedience, his own sin. And yet, there's a part of us that recognizes he dies because of the sin of the old prophet. Watch this now. The text leads us, through its deliberate ambiguity, to identify the man of God with the old prophet. He eats and drinks at the old prophet's house. He leaves on the old prophet's donkey. And after being carefully distinguished as man of God throughout the narrative, in verse 23, he is then identified as prophet. And then where is he buried? In the prophet's tomb. It is as if the man of God takes on the identity of the old prophet. More than that, it's as if he takes the punishment that the lying prophet deserves. Friends, we get a picture of the gospel in this. When we think of the true man of God, the Lord Jesus, who identifies himself with us. He takes on flesh like us, eats food like us, gets tired like us, gets hungry like us. Indeed, he is God with us. Jesus takes on the identity of his people, but more than that, he takes the punishment his people deserve, is killed, and then is buried in a tomb that is not his own. We Christians, like this old prophet, recognize Jesus died for our sins. And so in the certain hope of rest and resurrection, we bury ourselves with Jesus by faith, knowing his words are true. We say, when I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. You're buried with Christ by faith. Paul's words in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We recognize that Jesus has died, not for sins of his own, but for our sins, and we put our faith in him, wishing to be buried with him, recognizing, unlike the old prophet, that those who are united to the true man of God don't stay in the grave, but come up from it again, risen. And so we Christians obey the word of the Lord, which is to repent of our sins, 
and to listen to Jesus. Remember what God the Father says in Luke 9, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. What would Jesus have us do? Repent of our sins. Believe. Be baptized. Deny ourselves. Take up our cross. Follow him. Indeed, Jesus commands all. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, let us obey the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through it, you make yourself known. We pray that by your spirit, we might rightly understand this word, get a better grasp on who you are, and in light of that, come to love you more. You are our Lord and our God. We forsake our made-up religion. We lay down our sins. We give up our rebellion against you. We put our lives in Christ. We bury ourselves with Christ by faith, knowing that he gives us eternal life right now. And he has promised to us a resurrection then. We pray in his name. Amen.